Now we don't have any value. So I've been thinking about uh, the Grinch recently, Eden. Um, mm. I've been it, thinking that about season. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's Grinch time, baby. Um, I've been thinking: Is the Grinch a mammal? Mm. And that that spawns off its own like sub questions, right? Yeah, because if the Grinch is a mammal, he gives live birth and mm-hmm. uh, can lactate, um, right? Natural things of the breast. Uh, the the breast of the mammal, yeah. Uh, but I feel like, as much as you know, the envisionment of the Grinch as having uh, proto-human genitals, because he's a kind of Sasquatch, visibly. I mean, I think mm. I think that's uncontroversial. I think yes. there is a chance, however, from a, from a taxonomical perspective, I yeah, yeah. Like yeah. if you had to place him, you know, on, on a taxonomic tree, he'd be he'd be much closer branch-wise to you know a Sasquatch, a Yeti, you know, a bugbear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, contra a, a hot take: bugbears and sasquatches are related. Um, but it's like a it's like a horse zebra thing, you know. Um, yeah. But I feel like he might lay eggs, though. I just so, imagined the Grinch, you know, emitting a large egg with a smaller Grinch inside of it, and something about that seems correct. It seems, I, I I'd say divine but in 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 the traditional sense well god's work is harmonious right it is it is it ha- doesn't have extra parts right so yeah. if if the grinch um does lay eggs i ha- i have a few follow up questions are they green or i think they i think they're big and white and they're covered in a thin slime mm. to ease the progress of the egg out of the grinch so I want to skip a few steps forward here and ask, do you think the Grinch fears God? I do it, think it, the Grinch fears God. I think the Grinch yeah. has a, um, but like a Melmothian, like uh, uh mixture of fear and revulsion mm. uh, that, that, you know, cascades into like a satanic laughter, you know, um, right. like, like an echo from between the stars, right? Yeah. In, like in, you, in the Grinch's yeah. ears. You could make good black metal exploring the psyche of the Grinch. I think the Grinch has a psyche commensurate with that of, you know, our our Isans, our um, Fenrises, mm. you know. Yeah, um, but but I, do we delve? I think we we do open a door to darkness, delving mm. into the psyche of the Grinch, the only man who nearly successfully won the war on Christmas. I mean, right. black metal has burned down churches, but that, you know, that hasn't stopped anything. We see the Pope. I mean, that, that's sort of the thing that makes some of the theater of black metal kind of kind of comical because it's like, oh, I'm big and dangerous. And it's like, you literally didn't do anything. You're if racist if now. Anything, they're more like, flagrant, right? The yeah. Catholics, the Pope, he, he's out in the open. And yeah. yet Varg has been alive for like 40 years. And yet the Pope 
is still around. So who who has won? Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm I'm so I'm I'm such a you know, I'm such a rebel. I'm really racist, like all of society. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. uh, cool. That you that's terrible. Um yeah. meanwhile, the Grinch destroyed an entire holiday and only didn't because of the Nietzschean Ubermenschian will of Cindy Lou Who. Yeah, and I mean that's right, Cindy Lou Who is an Ubermensch. Yeah, I mean look at what he's up against. I mean, we all know that Santa is like an eldritch monster from before time was put yeah. into motion. Right? Like, that's the only way he can deliver just... all the presents within a single night over the entire planet. Nothing yeah. else really crosses that gap. I mean, yeah. it's very easy for, I don't want to say him because gendering such an entity seems fruitless, right? But it, it it's such a, it's such a um, irrelevant act for it since it exists both before and outside time as we perceive it, right? So, it's it's not even like Santa doesn't even blink. Well, he's unable to blink because he doesn't have irises, right? But that's besides the point. Yeah, it's uh the Grinch emits an energy like the um uh, again a, a powerful Nietzschean energy, like like the blazing sword in the darkness uh, mm. of of the kind of uh, revulsion against the divine order that uh, cascades into the death and destruction of the divine order. Like if if Santa represents a kind of Azathothian incursion mm -hmm. um thinking also in terms of like you know speculative realism and you know yeah. early nick land before he went just literal fascist that sure. kind of like uh you know Cthulhu kind of vibe yeah 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 the the cthulhu scene kind of um image yeah. uh that uh uh the grinch represents sort of like a a thackerian like uh rejection of this like he uh he and again, that's, that's where the, the, the relevance to Melmoth comes back, because he seems like he's girded um, with weapons of darkness wielded against darkness masquerading as light, because only the total death of the dream can eject us from the cave. He's so, like a liberator. So th this is a, well, nominally at least, a, a literature podcast, right? So, yeah. so let me bring it back to, to the realms of knowledge with which we deal would you say the grinch or even the grinch versus santa dynamic is a murkokian kind of dynamic like like an eternal champion sort of vibe are, are they the pure forms from which all the endless heroes will then cascade or are they just another form of an eternal champion like being you know wielding this this battle as you say against the forces of darkness well so that I think unfortunately brings us into a, a kind of realm of of a certain kind of idealism uh, and imminence, like imminence in a, uh, a Deleuzian sense. There's a smoothness to the eternal champion and mm. to and to that conflict that it deliberately does away with rigidities, and the rigidities that emerge are what make them turn into, say, our Corneliuses, our our Elrics, you know, things like that. They they descend into materiality, and I think that the Grinch is instead, again, more, more of the Nietzschean eruptive thing. He is the material, the, the fallen demiurgic matter of, matter of life that rejects violently the ideal uh, imminence of the divine. He is the anti-divine. He is the cross smasher, uh, the, the system breaker. Mm -hmm. So I think perhaps so he is born into that system but rejects yeah. it, which leads me to believe that he lays eggs. 
Right. So my final question before we put this like subject to rest for, for a while, because yeah. it is infinitely interesting and um, arouses my curiosity. Where does Jim Carrey fit into this? Right, because he, he, he famously, I'm not going to say that he acted the Grinch, right? He manifested the Grinch, I would say. That's a perfect way to describe that. That that right. I think I think the relation sort of becomes um, laid bare for us when we when we think about Jim Carrey in Vis a Vis the Grinch, that um, they are of an intertwined spirit. It's sort of like uh, uh, the, the notion in Zarathustra that um, every Ubermensch is infinitely atomic and individual, but in doing so is infinitely bound and conjoined, uh, similar to, to to the Buddha in a way. Yeah, um, and, and to the they, champion and, and, and the soul, right? Like they yeah. are one and different, um, the same and yet separate with their own agendas. Yeah, and so I believe Jim Carrey is a, um, and you know, I, I think again about his about his painting of the uh, the hanging of of the murdered Mussolini, and then how he told Mussolini's granddaughter to go fuck herself, and I think. This is Grinch spirit. This is the Ubermenschian uh, Grinch geist that I seek to manifest into this world. So I, I love that that last piece actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that did literally happen. And it was one of the best things I've ever seen. People who say Twitter is a bad app totally ignore things like Jim Carrey making the granddaughter of Mussolini mad by painting her murdered grandpa. And then when she was like, this sucks, he was like, your grandpa sucks. Fuck you. <laughs> Yeah, and and then I think it's it's a great place to 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 bring all this too because you can't when reality is that ridiculous you can't actually say that anything that we've been bullshitting about since we started is is false or like not real right because your your reference point is is a reality where Jim Carrey told Mussolini's granddaughter to go fuck herself. Yeah, I mean it it, it gets at um. And th- th- this this thought's going to turn actually political in a second. Um, we we imagine ourselves enmeshed in systems of the world that are firmly material, such that we yeah. are enslaved to them. And in a manner, mm-hmm. that's true. As a Marxist, I can't say that that's objectively untrue. Um, but we ignore, and this is where um, perhaps it, we've had mild uh, congenial conflicts about idealism versus materialism, um, which. Honestly, if you're a leftist and you aren't having those conversations, uh, get good scrub. Um, but yeah, this is where the idealist in me does does come out because it ignores something that like Foucault would bring up, that Derrida would bring up, um, that these systems are, and also that like bell hooks and and like um, and that Lord would bring up. Uh, you know, it's two great you know black thinkers. Um, yeah that these systems in which we are enmeshed are also created and enacted continuously. And this, this brings in the, one of, I think the underpinning things of this podcast in general, and it's like why literature, if you talk a lot about, you know, philosophy and also politics, and then also just, you know, just shit that shows up in your brain is literature becomes a mirror for the world and art in general becomes a mirror for the world of politics and materiality because inevitably these are systems that people invented and that we invested ourselves into and then perpetuate through that investment and that a lot of times a simple breaking of the mirror or like waking up from the dream this is where the non eye rolly 
origins of the term woke came from is sort of the reference of, of dream versus wakefulness. And like, mm -hmm. you don't have to be enmeshed in these things. Like you don't have to constantly relitigate um, toxic masculinity and the misogyny involved in it. You don't have to buy into the, the mythic narrative of gender that like turfs really love to cleave to that it like, uh, and this is where like, I dabble in occult stuff too. I've talked about that before, but the, the notion of like gender as a pathway to magic gets really gross real quick because it becomes very essentialized yeah. in that way. Um, I mean, I think, I think for me, it's a question of, you know, if you will God, and, and I'm going somewhere relevant with this, bear with me. Um, there would be no space um, between your perceptions of the world and how the world is actually. Um, there would be no space between your thoughts and your words and your actions, but uh, you're not God. I hope we can agree on that. Um, and so there is space. There is a space between how you see things and how they actually might be the space between your thoughts and material reality and into that space lots of things insert themselves like culture and language and philosophy and stuff of that sort and those things become mediators now the naive um way to look at it, which is the modernist way to look at it, which is the fascist way to look at it, which is the biological essentialist way to look at it, is say, yeah, that space is really, really small. Like, you're right that it's there. I don't think any but the most ridiculous of people would say, no, no, that space is non-existent. You see things exactly as they are. But they like to say, no, no, it's pretty, it's pretty naive. It's pretty close. If you see someone presenting as a woman, then they are a woman. Or if you see... Um, a capitalist presenting as a philanthropist, then they are a good person. And quote-unquote all that postmodernism is doing is saying, look buddy, those things that are, have interjected themselves between you and the actual are infinitely complex and infinitely repeatable and infinitely different to the extent that there is no longer any way for you to reach the actual. Um, a lot of people say, well, that you can't be a Marxist and believe that. And I think that's bullshit because... Yeah, that's, that's really, really ludicrous. Yeah, but it's a really popular yeah. opinion. Well, yeah, I mean, you see it a lot. Online, like, yeah, I mean, online and online leftism doesn't matter. By the way, yeah. let me just say that, like, online leftism does not matter. Like, it's, it's also like a self-critique, right? Like, going on this yeah. podcast talking about leftism, writing about it on Twitter or on a blog, it doesn't fucking matter, right? If you're not out there doing revolutionary stuff and that stuff is not that complicated, it is very difficult to do, but it's not complicated to know what needs to be done, um, then it doesn't matter. But within that context, it's really popular online to say, oh, you can't be a postmodernist and a Marxist, which is just utter nonsense because the material still exists and the actual still exists, even if we can't access it without the mediation of these tools like culture and language and like people, specific people or groups of people called classes have different mediators, right? With the actual, have different ways to access it and to manipulate it and to do things with it. Those are the means of production, just like 
The means of production are physical things like factories and conveyor belts and how you organize labor. They are also how you produce meaning and reality and culture and so on. So yeah, those I mean, things are not incompatible. It, it's a fundamental notion of specifically the school of neo-Marxism of incorporating those, those postmodern um, critiques and modes of thought into Marxist thought by giving them the heft of uh, historical materialist uh, or mis- historical dialectical materialism. But, um, and th- this is where my, my defense of certain idealist philosophers also comes in is because we, um, it's something that I actually, you, you get glimmers of it sometimes, but then for me as reading Deleuze made it click for me. Um, like a lot of things. Uh, yeah. Uh, daily reminder. Um, we love Deleuze here. Love, love that guy. <laughs> Gotta say his name every time. Um, but specifically the argument that we can't present um, modes of thought or language or modes of perception or modes of um, cognizance, you know, questions of epistemology, of hermeneutics, of we can't render these things as just the realm that um, idealists would think in because they're non-material, because they emerged from the material. Our brains are things and our minds emerge from our brain and these things emerge from our minds and the relation of minds to one another they all still have roots in materiality the the supposition that these forms in which our brains think are non-material implies some kind of supernatural incursion this is where we get the language of the cthulhu scene in again before those people went just literally full fash um because We've talked about it before on the podcast. I don't think I've talked about it specifically with with Eden on the podcast, but we've talked in private about it. There was a window where figures like uh, Registani and Nick Land were like super, super interesting to people in the world of philosophy in their early career because they they all started as Marxists. Like uh, we've talked, we have talked about this on the podcast. Nick Land started as like a fellow student with Mark Fisher and co-founded the CCRU with mark fisher amongst other people and then he from the outside it looks like he had more like a like a a careerist breakdown that mark fisher was getting more and more traction in a certain way um obviously the reality of mark fisher getting more and more traction wasn't quite true because that was one of the despair things that wounded mark and helped drive his depression so much mm-hmm. um miss him um but yeah, it broke something in Nick Land, and he basically threw out all these promising thoughts in these directions to just go full fashion and be a Twitter troll like a fucking dork. But- so let me let me let me hot take here for a sec. The thing that the right often doesn't understand, and this is like a, a main part of the cultural wars that we have the unfortunate um, chance to be a part of, is that they mistake irony for humor irony and humor are cousins they live side by side i like to equate it to a green apple and a red apple irony is a green apple it is um dry and sour and cutting it's still good i love green apples but it's not exactly the same a red apple is sweeter it has this sort of like joie de vivre, right? It has this buoyancy to it that is humor. Now, it's super important for postmodernist thinkers, and in fact, many of them, uh, that was the case for them, it's super important for them to have humor. 
Like if you look at Deleuze for sure, Guattari, yeah. Derrida, all these guys, also non um, French thinkers, because f- French and irony and humor have a lot in common, but Kierkegaard had a great sense of humor and Nietzsche as well. Um, you start to humor reminds you of the material, right? It reminds you that at the end of the day, the texts are important, the lectures are important, the talks and the ideas are important, but reality and life lie elsewhere, right? It reminds you of the fact that you're just a bag of meat and your ideas don't really matter. Now, if you don't have humor and all you have is irony, you get Nick Land, right? Well, everything is so fucking important. Everything is so cataclysmic. Everything is so life and death that you can't see your own ridiculousness. And that's the case with all these right-wing wackos that they, they think that they literally think in the terms of Western civilization collapsing and the fight between good and evil and all that nonsense. And a lot of Marxists make the same mistake, right? Um, like this idea that we're entering some sort of Titan Mackie, right? Like a, a, a Titanic battle of the gods versus like these nefarious entities, or of capitalism as this like multi tentacled Cthulhu esque entity. Like capitalism is powerful, but it's also very, very weak because it's made out of people small people you know like jeff bezos he farts he like not to be too explicit maybe he has a dick right like he orgasms he he sits on the toilet he coughs and chokes and does all those things that people do but when you paint him as this like robert heinlein-esque iron rand titan of industry that like only exists to make speeches then you're missing the point um and I see it all the time, like people who have only read postmodernism, like haven't done the work. I'm sorry for the term. I know we don't like it, but have done the work of reading other things, like not postmodernism. Yeah. They take it so fucking seriously. And like Deleuze would make fun of you to your face for doing that. Like read his fucking books, listen to his interviews. He was joking. Like I'm not exaggerating like 50% of the time. Yeah, I mean, like, I I was mentioning this, uh, um, so well, we've chat on Facebook on, you know, other people's threads, uh, sh- shockingly. Yeah, I know, it's, it's weird. Um, but, um, we're, we're chatting with, um, with, with Doug from, from Piran, who, who also, like, is a wicked fucking smart dude, not, not yeah. sure if that shock anyone. Yeah, like, crazy well-read, like, around, um. Yeah, the, the, the topic came up of, like, if you want Deleuze when he's not telling jokes, read Difference and Repetition. That's a serious, like, masterwork of philosophy. It's literally immediately after that. He was like, all right, I did that. All right, let's just vibe. We're vibing now. And it mystifies me when people can't seem to pick that up because they feel like they're obvious jokes of him just, like, riffing or just saying bullshit or, like, I'm just going to throw one out in the air, spin it around a bit, put it down. And people are like, he's not as serious as it's like of course he he doesn't think that he's more serious than these other people he thinks that seriousness is part of the problem like yeah or over serious or like 
institutionalizing seriousness as a sign that you're worthy of, you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, 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 it I, goes it goes back to this idea of the naive, naivete or the naive approach to the interplay between sign and signified, right? To use maybe to bring a bit of Derrida into it, right? Um, they're games. These, these relationships between what you say and what you mean and what actually exists, they're games. They're games that our brain loves to play. And, and those games have a name. It's called culture. Culture is a play. It is a game. Writing is a game. It has very um, nebulous rules. And going against the rules and doing things with them, we just discussed House of Leaves, right, is, is a move. It's a legitimate move. But you're still playing, right? And one of the worst things, everybody who's listening was a kid unless like entities from beyond time are listening i mean other than craig um you probably encountered the kid that takes games too seriously those kids tend to be really cool very cool and only focused on winning and dominating other players let me tell you something that's exactly what the right and also elements in the left do all the time. They take these games, they take these um, things that are not 100% serious and shouldn't be taken as such, and they inject it with this bottomless um, realness, right? Like a concrete weight. Like if you say, that's where I, I really don't like people who talk about cancel culture because usually they just have like skeletons in the closet. But that's where the bad parts of cancel culture, that's where they come from. Because for most people, the game is so fuzzy that if you say something you didn't mean, you can just apologize and say, oh, I, I, I fucked up. But for people for whom the rules are the point, if you break the rules, they will take you to tax. No, you broke the rules. You must be punished. Um, so like bringing it all together, you have to look at these things as if they don't matter. It's really important that you do that. Um, and we've spoken against the Academy a lot on this cast, and I think we should keep doing that because yeah. that's one of the problems with the Academy. It doesn't matter. Your PhD, your thesis, your master's, your bachelor's, it's, it's just a way to play a game. Um, and it has a lot of advantages. I have a BA. I started an MA. I didn't quit because I thought it was bullshit. I quit because I didn't have the energy to do that and work a full-time job. Surprise. Um, but it's just a fucking game. So when someone you know, approaches you and they say something that is wrong or well, you think is wrong or you think is stupid or whatever, even though that term is like fucking bullshit, you shouldn't you know, come down on them with this weight of you don't play by the rules and now you must suffer. You have to take yourself like just a bit less seriously. Otherwise you become Nick Land. No one wants that. You don't want no that. One, you don't no want to be Nick, Nick Land. We, did, we didn't even need yeah. one. Like, <laughs> yeah. Too many. Yeah. No one asked for this. So just tell a fucking joke for once in a while, like a joke at your expense. Right? Um, even if you're a Marxist, even if it's about the revolution, even if it's about 
really important things like worker liberation. Like someone tells a joke about a communist, you should laugh. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's. it's I, d I really don't get how like really uptight people can sometimes be all the time, like uh, deliberately so. Um, cause obviously things can happen that can make us uptight, not judging that kind of thing. But yeah, when people like valorize, like I am absolutely humorless in every capacity. It's like, that's tight, man. You sound like you've died. I'm sorry for whatever happened to you. Um, I yeah. seek your healing. Uh, and I think in a, a broader sense, a, uh, the, the upshot of all of these, um, formal and informal games the uh the play and interplay of uh like mode and material of of perception and the actual is you actually don't have to write about vector um that's not actually no one needs that no <laughs> one wants that doesn't need to happen i mean i'm not sure it's... why exactly i'm bringing this up specifically but you know in case in case anything happens uh in the next coming weeks or previous weeks um that i may or may not have known about just that you don't actually have to write about them or promote them in I, any way. I mean, I think it's a it's a perfect example, right? Because what can I just say the name of the guys? Can I just do that? Yeah, fuck them. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, they, fuck them. So they said was lamb goat. Fucking shit. Yeah, it's lamb yeah, goat. So, la so lamb goat. Yeah, decided to cover vector. In, in case you don't know, the the main vector guy. What the fuck is his trash name? DeSantos? Something like yeah. that. Yeah, he's like an abuser full-on domestic violence if if that's not for some reason enough for you though it should be he also abuses animals like he's a fucking piece of shit piece and of it's shit one of those, like, good musician if you somehow don't believe people when they say this which shame frankly shame on you if you don't uh we also have video of it and that video got passed yeah. around it's not hard to find yeah. even still like yeah it uh, unimpeachable proof that this guy's just a yeah. huge piece of shit like he, uh, incredible musician right um yeah. i fucking love vector but i haven't listened to it since and i'm not planning on listening to anything new he puts out or for fuck's sake covering it on my platform now their response to people calling them out on it was like this is how news journalism works things happen we report on them it, we don't ask the questions of whether it's right or not this is just our job and that is exactly what I meant about being humorless. There's a rule. The rule is, if it happens and we hear about it, we have to report on it. That's the rule of how news journalism works. That the right in that case, that's how you do it. But they can't, for one fucking second, step outside of their precious rules and say, yeah, we're not going to do this part. We're not going to do it because it doesn't need to happen. It doesn't matter whether we cover it or not from like a, a universal perspective, nothing will happen. We'll just won't do it because he's a piece of shit. So we're just not going to do it. And we don't owe anyone anything because these rules are fucking made up. Right. Yeah. Um, and just like that, that's, that's the big thing that I was, that I was mentioning before. These are, these are ultimately creations of, of our minds as ways to understand and interact with the world and with each other. They're important things and we need them because our brain, unfortunately, part of our brain is wired to take in raw sense data, things like temperature, things like the passage of time, hot and cold, yada, yada, yada. Doesn't sound that exciting or like real cognition because unfortunately the part that does cognition, you know, the, the thinking mind, the one that, you know, when you hear 
your own thoughts in your head. That part of your brain doesn't use that kind of data. Um, it it needs other kinds of stuff in order to actually form relations. This is also where we sometimes get the bad the bad thought that people are doing something wrong if they need to relate something they see to something they've previously experienced. Because mm-hmm. that's literally just how brains work. They're not trying to be rude. They just they need uh, an anchor point to grasp what it is that's happening. But because all of these things are literally just made up ways for us to engage with people, it means you literally don't have to do them, especially yep. if they're fucking bullshit. <laughs> like, yep. I mean, and it just boggles the mind, right? Because we used to be, and when I say we, I mean a heavy blog. We used to be like in the same place that Lamb Goat are. Like in 2014, 2015, we covered news. And yeah, I, I know like the push of um, you have to find an article or there's something you feel like you have to report on. But then at some point, after doing it for like two years, and they've been doing it for 20, 20 fucking years, I was just like, what if I don't though? Like, what if I just don't cover this thing? Because it's bullshit and I don't want to cover it. I don't want to give it space. I don't want to give it the time of day. Let, let me let me clue you in. Nothing happened. The sky didn't fall. The blog didn't shut down. I was not barred from whatever journalistic entity could even bar me. It just nothing happened because yeah. none of this is important. What is important is what you actually end up doing, like amplifying a domestic abuser. That does matter because it has real-world ramifications and not made-up rules. What's not a game is what you end up doing to hurt other people in real life. That is not a game. And there are no made-up rules there, except for don't fucking do it. Um, so, oh God, it just pisses yeah, me off it, so much. It's so it, easy. It's, it's so easy for them to not have posted that, right? And then even, like... It, not not to say that their response becomes more important than their action because it it doesn't but even in terms of response people fuck up and while certain people will probably never forgive you and that's that's their own decision to make you could easily have gone oh yeah we did something fucked we're gonna delete that and some people will be like that's a sign that they don't really care other people will be like it's a sign that they do at least listen to critique that's that that splitting of of interpretation is gonna happen but you can do that that is something available and they didn't they did the classic double down there they wigged out um big um big props to uh trevor from putrescene who's friend of the channel um for literally if you read his comment to them it's such a like gentle like hey what you guys are doing is fucked he's like if i were uh if i were covering a band with a known domestic abuser i simply would have mentioned that somewhere in the article like a really they they lost their minds they showed their whole ass they said explicitly like well if we didn't cover people who did bad things we wouldn't have anything to cover which is not true whatsoever like um, yeah and even if it was like good then just don't yeah right out who gives a shit like like I, I, this is uh, I don't want to invoke their name because there's a lot of steam attached to them. But there's someone involved in the metal community, and you may know who I'm talking about, whose big thesis is that people like um Kim Kelly or bands like uh or events like Black Flags over Brooklyn or things like that are utterly unimportant because there aren't really that many Nazis or abusers in metal. That's obviously not true. There's a hell of but one grain of that is 
there are more than enough that aren't that you don't have to fucking engage with them. <laughs> like you, like yeah. you absolutely don't have to go, well, my hands are tied. I absolutely have to listen to other pieces of shit because otherwise I wouldn't have any music. No, there's plenty of music that doesn't have that stain. It takes some work. It takes the help of certain journalistic and critical entities to go, Hey, we've done some research and we found this stuff, but you, you can do it. And it's not an extra burden to do that because that same burden is part of what promoted these pe these bands with bad people in the first place. But on one end, we consider it part and parcel of of life, and in another, it's uh, a like an objective burden that makes it too difficult. And it's like fuck you, lamb goat. Fuck you. Like as someone yeah, who also like, does this stuff, fuck yeah. you. You don't have to go to hell. Yeah, like you know, broadening the, the target of what, what we're saying and, and going back to this thing of, like, seriousness. Um, let's say that someone says, if I follow your maxim, then I, I won't be able to listen to black metal. Okay, then don't listen to it. Again, it's not important. It's just because of this, like, um, cataclysmic importance that you give things like black metal is something more than just a style of music that you love which is already plenty and i just fucking wrote like ten thousand words about it a few weeks ago that's still powerful Great article by the way that was you you were a really you. goddamn good article thank you um but at the same time you don't have to listen to metal and like maybe to to put a bow around this discussion so we can move on talking about something <laughs> good um just i'll give you another um analogy that i suspect will be less emotionally charged for people listening uh, because it's not about metal but it's the ex exact same thing soccer or <laughs> football or any like huge um sport event so let's take soccer because it has a history of gangs right and gang violence um what's called hooligans right um in israel like all things in Israel, that kind of like hooliganism is racially charged. There are there's one all Arab team in the Israeli soccer league, and there's another team, the Jerusalem like home team, is extremely racist to the point that their organizations have been declared organized crime organizations, um, and they a few years ago now it doesn't happen anymore. Um, they were constantly clashing in like abysmal violence, terrible violence. Of course, mostly instigated from the Jewish side of things. And there were discussions about, you know, it was literally every week, every week, like police had to arrive and people would get stabbed and, and beaten and horrible things. And I was just looking around me and I said, then cancel soccer. Like, if they can't guarantee a safe environment for their fans and their players and they can't play soccer without like not beating on the other team then disband the team like obviously don't disband the entire league take that team that racist team disband it soccer is not water or food or a house it's not a basic necessity it's a game which is very important to a lot of people but it's not necessary for you to live your life and if you can't do it without being a dick then you don't get to do it 
Like, what is like a simpler maxim in this reality than that? It's almost like the non-aggression principle that libertarians taught, but they never actually put into play. So that analogy applies to metal as well. If you can't not be a dick while listening to metal or making metal, then don't. Then fucking don't do it. Just walk away. You don't have to do it. It's not necessary for you to live your life. And then everything becomes simpler. Lamb Goat cover shitty bands. Stop following Lamb Goat. Agonia Records release fucking Inquisition. Stop covering Agonia Records or buying merch from them because no one is important. No one is above. No one makes art, not just in metal, that is so crucial, so necessary, that it serves as an excuse for harming other people in all fields of, of, life, of life. Right? It doesn't matter. There are other books, other bands, other paintings, other anything you want to you wanna say that um, can serve the same role, so you don't need those people. Just get rid of them. Just like soccer is not essential, metal is not essential. That's it. Yeah, it's... And there, there's, there's almost certainly going to be some, some kind of rejoinder that people have in the back of their heads. This isn't the comment on the complexities of what if I already have these things in my collection? What do it? There are, there are other angles. This is more a like a big, big groundwork. Anything else would be like a small, minute adjustment in the wake of these other, I think, more important thoughts that it's like. Especially but, but, on institutional ends. Like, let, let, let me, let me, let's, sorry, sorry for cutting you off. I'm just so fucking oh fucked up over this shit. Like, it's just the same problem again of taking yourself too seriously. It doesn't matter yeah. what's in your library. It doesn't matter. Yeah. No one cares. No one gives a shit what you listen to. Listen to whatever you want. Listen to whatever terrible band you want. It doesn't matter. Your money that you give them, don't give them money if you cannot give them money, is, is irrelevant. I don't care if you pay them like, fucking $0.5 on Spotify for streaming their album or 10 bucks for downloading it. That's not the point. Individual action is not the point. We're yeah. leftists. Individual action is not relevant because you're not that fucking important. Don't stop taking yourself so seriously. So the question becomes not what should I do? What should I do with my musical collection and my listening habits? But rather, what should we do? as a scene, as a community, as a society, as a something bigger than just some guy spinning some black metal record in their house, which no one gives a shit about, it becomes tougher questions like, how do we prevent abusers from abusing people through our scene? How do we stop Nazis from organizing in our scene? And the answer to that is not delete Varg from your library. Like... <laughs> Yeah. And that, that, that covers, I think literally every angle. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that was the, the point that I was going to go towards, but you, um, nailed it. Uh, so let's, uh, let's pivot now to some, some music from some true heroes that, uh, absolutely embody the Grinch Geist, uh, in all facets of, of their life and creative work. Uh, tribulation. Um, yeah. Can't, tell you so uh i included it in the last episode we were thinking about um playing tribulation in the last episode but even at a, a really really good um bit of music from cinderwell and i've been listening to that record a lot since um that closed things out really well but my one ironclad thing when we recorded this one is i'm putting a tribulation single in and he was like, yes, <laughs> but yeah. um uh they're simply my favorite 
contemporary band have been for the past about five years or so. They're they're run from Formulas of Death forward, I think, is like great. The run from Children of the Night forward, I think, is like literally legendary. These are just like perfect records to me. Um I assume Eden also that you got a promo of their new one. Yeah. 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 It's um it's been going around in journalism circles and critical circles because it's coming out in January. It's 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 not like a massive um like like super early release or something, but it's exactly what I want from the band because it's more of the children of the night sound. Um they seem to know perfectly well um that this is like a golden period for the band um and just just give me more and they did and they gave me more and it's exactly as good um of course nothing in this life is good uh existence is pain um it <laughs> uh it then came out after after the promos had gone out that jonathan holton the primary songwriter of the band and primary lyricist of the band and mm-hmm. a number of other things had left um this is just supposition on my part but he had put out a record in 2020 um, there was a follow-up to an EP that he put out a year or two prior and reception to it was super good. And when you're the primary songwriter of a band and then your solo material does well, it starts to open up certain things of why don't I just do this on my own? Um, yeah. which, which I can follow no, no fault to him. And I'm absolutely going to be very eager to see what he does. And they did. The band did the right thing of, and he did the right thing of they secured a replacement for him that the band felt comfortable with. And they nailed all that down before they even made the announcement. So the announcement was the band isn't breaking up. We're not going to leave you in a weird um, fandom link limbo or journalistic or critical limbo here. Here's exactly what's going on. They tapped uh, the guitars from enforcer who are a really great, um, like speed metal band. Um, they don't get a lot of coverage because they're pretty like by the numbers speed metal, but like it rules. So whatever. Um, <laughs> but it'll be interesting to see where they go because Holton was their primary songwriter. Um, I know the, the other guys in the band have more than enough chops to carry on. And like the, the assemblage um, to, again, to go back to Deleuze, we love that guy. Um, the assemblage <laughs> of tribulation, I don't think requires Holton. I do think it will be, It'll be very interesting to see how it shifts, but the other guys contributed more than enough to that general makeup that um it it does wind up leaving this new record where uh, where the gloom becomes sound um it it puts a bow on it because it functionally makes children of the night up to gloom a like a trilogy um mm-hmm. and we have a firm aesthetic carried between all of the records. We have a firm lineup. We have a firm creative direction. And so I think it, especially for tribulation who thematically deal a lot with death consciousness and the transformative threshold of death in both a metaphorical and literal sense and, um, underworld, like they're much more symbolic, symbologically, there we go. And semiotically in tune with black metal and death metal, but in a literary sense rather than in a, an edgelord sense that, that this becomes exciting for me. Um, anyway, they, they dropped a new single um, this past Friday called hour of the wolf. Um, incidentally, uh, my favorite Bergman film 
Um, hmm. I'm not sure if they named it after the Bergman film, but considering that they're yeah. the cover of Children of the Night is borrowed from Les Vampires, which is a um a crime serial. Um, there's a non-zero chance that this is partly a filmic reference. It fits um, the the aesthetic, right? Yeah. Um, and especially especially if you've seen that movie, uh, thinking that uh Tribulation might name something after it makes perfect sense. That movie is. Oh, very strange by the end. Very, very surreal, um, like uh, German expressionist horror vibes at the end, which absolutely fits in the band. Um, but yeah, here's uh, one of literally the best bands going right now with notably no abusers or Nazis. Uh, fingers crossed. It's possible. Uh, uh, with Hour of the Wolf. <laughs>
All right. And that was uh, Tribulation with uh, Hour of the Wolf. Uh, uh, Kick-ass, whip-ass, sick-ass band. Um, that's good. No abusers. Very good. Sums them up. Uh, and now we're going to talk about um, another kick-ass, whip-ass, sick-ass uh, thing. But this one's a novella uh, called Ring Shout. Yep. And it's by P. Jelly Clark. I actually Googled how to pronounce the name, and he has a very useful pronunciation guide on his website. So shout out to him. Um, which is actually the nom de plume of Dexter Gabriel. And that's interesting because Dexter is a historian specifically of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, he also writes about other things, but that's one of his um, main research um, points. And you might recognize the name P. Jelly Clark, which is what he writes science fiction under, because it's been all over the scene for the last few years. He has won um, the Hugo Award for Best Novella with his uh, Black God's Drums and his 2019 The Haunting of Tramcar 015 was a finalist for the Hugo Award. It was also, it was also ne- nominated for the Nebula Award um, and he has been nominated for like a line of other awards um, including the Locus and uh, the, Theod- the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award and a bunch of other um, stuff. And rightfully so, he is really fucking good. Fucking phenomenal writer. I incredible. I, I saw literally the thing that made me order this book was I saw his name, I saw the proposed cover of the book, and a link, and that was it. I uh I'd read Black Odds Drums at the recommendation of somebody. It blew my motherfucking mind. Yeah. Fucking incredible. Um. It it's novella win with more than earned. Um, Red Haunting of Tramcar 015. Again, gr- I it had a diminished effect on me. I think if only because that nothing can replicate <laughs> the first time. Um, yeah. it, it was pretty much just this good. It's just reading the Black Gods drums just like just like melted my brain. But yeah, one of those. Um, I consider him in a similar wave of like deeply literary um, genre fiction uh, that say someone like Marlon James lives in who previously won a Booker prize for a history Mm -hmm. of seven killings and then put out, I never get the colors right. Black leopard, red wolf. Yes. Okay. Uh, Which stupendously phenomenal book. Um, But that those blending elements of both like you can tell this is a guy who cut his teeth on literary work just that or work within the field of literary fiction it's genre work can be literary duh you know that um but he cut his teeth on <laughs> literary fiction just as much genre fiction and you can tell that with just like he doesn't do the simple tricks that even some of the i think well regarded writers in the Temporary wave of science fiction and fantasy do well. They'll have like, like a very pretty turn of phrase or a concept that's really interesting, or not ter- knock the writing, but they deliberately have more of a um, a transparency. Like they want people to have poeticism, they want it to be poignant, but they also 
don't necessarily want it to be this dense, chewy thing. And I really love how Jelly Clark just isn't afraid of that. He's like, no, there, there's a verve to it. And like this level of literary trust that he's like, I can get these little avant-garde textures, these sort of like dense and evocative, but not necessarily purely literal passages. Um, and I, I trust you with them. I trust that you'll, you'll get it. You'll read it and you'll be like, ah, oh, this is like, it adds to the sort of um, really vicious intensity of the book. Um, yeah. Like if black metal were not racist. That's a <laughs> thing to so, all my black metal listening fans. I obviously also like black metal. <laughs> That's going to be relevant about the book and we'll get to that. But uh, yeah. So I think like circling closer to the plot, um, <laughs> like I think one of, one of the things that he does really well, and I, I, I really agree with what you said um, is like Marlon James, he, he looks backwards Right, so it's not exactly Afrofuturism, right? Because it's not in the future. Although the haunting of Tramcar is is in an alternate history line, um, he looks back at key moments in African history, and of course, for him, African history as someone who um, his parents are from Trinidad and, and Tobago, um, and but he was he was born in New York City. He spent a lot of time there, so he understands that. The history of Africa by force has become global, right? Because so many people were brutally taken from the continent and spread all over the world. That African story has become uh, geographically everywhere. Um, and he taps into those stories to, you know, tell human occurrences, right? He's not just revolving around oh, look at this really cool invention, look at this really cool gadget, look at this like manifestation of my idea. It's rather, okay, we get it. This is the backdrop. This is the, the colors that I'm painting with. Now let me paint you a picture of a person and their feels and what they love and what's important to them inside of this um, historical African um, backdrop. Right? So in Ring Shout, in Haunting of Tramkar, he did it in Egypt. Right? Like imagine Egypt that tore open a portal to the realm of the jinn and now has like a, a much more advanced technology than it actually had in the early 20th century. But with Ring Shout, he um, goes back to, well, not back, he goes to America in the 20s right? and focuses on the South. Now, if you know anything about the 20s um, in America, you know that the KKK, that's where they were, well, the second iteration of the KKK, that's where they were born. All right, so briefly, I'm not going to go into the history of the KKK. It's fascinating. But if you don't know, there were actually two iterations of the KKK. The first one was a pre and, 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 and post-Civil War society of rich white people basically and they were hella racist but it wasn't as weaponized as our conceptions of the kkk because it mostly was a secret society they still did like terrible things but they weren't as um populist as what we think about the kkk and then in the 20s that that secret society like kind of died down went out of fashion there were always members probably but it wasn't really widespread and then in the 20s, it enjoyed this 
um, spike in popularity and membership for many reasons. A lot of them social and economic, but also cultural. And one of the biggest cultural events surrounding the KKK is the release of The Birth of a Nation. Yep, 1917, right? if I remember correctly. Never forget, never forget that the first big widespread release of a movie in America was racist as fuck. Um, like th- the whole, I was wrong. The whole, so maybe I was wrong and it's not the twenties and I got it wrong. It's like the tens. Um, cause well, it's it, around it, the release. They, they yeah, boomed after, but there was a peak of membership in the twenties, twenties going into yeah. the thirties. So I'm American, so I have to know this shit. Otherwise, I feel like I'm contributing to uh, uh, a psychic cancer eroding uh, the spiritual health of the entire planet. Yep. Um, so into this re- very real um, thing comes Clark, and he says, okay, um, what if there is something behind this resurgence of the KKK. What if, in fact, the entire organization is a front for something else? And that something else is transdimensional monsters. What if, like, 95% of all the members of the KKK are just people, but 5% are actually monsters from a different dimension who want to consume the Earth? And the way for them to get a a foothold in our realm is through hate. The more we hate, the more divided we become, the more psychically active we become, the more they can feed on our fears and hates. Um, What what better way for them to get their message across than for a film, right? Um, Get the message out there to the masses and gain a lot of power in one stroke. Against these forces, we have uh, three characters who are basically monster hunters. Right? They go around for some reason or other, it changes between characters. They can see like the real monsters hiding um, behind the fake KKK uh, humans, and they can take them out, right? Um, So we follow these three characters. All of them are women, by the way, which is very interesting. And the main character is Maurice Baudrillo. um, And she is like this, uh, she's Captain America, right, of the group. She's like the center around which this monster fighting trio um, fight. And last thing I'm going to say about the story, because I don't want to spoil too much, she also has a magic sword. Fuck yeah. Every, every story needs a magic sword. But her magic sword, very, very interestingly, draws its power, and, and, and note this because it's, it's really subtle and, and complex, I feel, the bond owed to the slaves, the African slaves, by the kings and chieftains who profited from the slave trade which is super fascinating, right? So when she draws the sword and uses its magic, 
all of the souls of the slaves that died during the Atlantic Passage, the Middle Passage, and on plantations, and afterwards, so-called emancipation, which actually saw a rise in brutality against African Americans in the States, um, all of these cry out in pain and sing and beat drums to wake dead African chieftains and kings and get them to intercede with ancient gods and give the wielder of the sword her power. How fucking awesome is that? It's such a, like a clever spin on where magic swords get their power and why they are magical. And instead of a Nietzschean narrative where she is some sort of ubermensch and she has the power to wield um, the strength and she's like a very powerful wizard, it's not about her almost at all. It's about this collective suffering. Um, that's where the power comes from. So that's that's like the the, the plot of of, of Ringshot. One of the things that I really loved, especially about how how the sword worked on a thematic end, um, and this is, this is more like a literary criticism at this point, is it didn't do one of my biggest pet peeves, specifically in fantasy writing. Um, and th this is, I think, broadly speaking, at least in part, uh, a fantasy novella, um, at least in certain modal ways. Um, yeah. That it doesn't invoke magic in a bluntly mechanical sense where you then get pages and pages describing exact mechanics. I mean, as much as you did just describe the mechanics given given in the book, there's this strong weight of it feels more folkloric um yeah, in it's, that it's actual loose. yeah it's it's in that actual fantastical sense that you get the um the weight of it as a symbolic or um uh imagistic thematic component rather than necessarily like here are the rules and if you because you know the rules if you do this with the rules you can do this other thing oh isn't that um it it keeps this like really emotionally rich literary component bound up like deep inside of the book literally at all times baller shit is happening and also at the same time you're like that's a really that's a really powerful uh literary usage of and it's like that's the sweet spot of all books for me where it's like on one end yeah. i'm like this is so emotionally rich and so thematically like powerful but also it fucking rules like they she kills kkk members with a sword a magic sword <laughs> empowered yeah. by the suffering of dead slaves that makes it especially powerful against racists and i'm like this is so fucking good like yeah i got i was reading it and i was getting mad at, at lovecraft county again um a book that doesn't deserve anyone to be mad at it to be to, to be fair i'm being hyperbolic with that but it's like Lovecraft County, I've mentioned this before, felt kind of like a missed opportunity because it's a very rich notion of, um, as we were talking about before, that that unearthly, like almost Freudian, um, like uncanny sense of the profundity of certain racism, like the KKK, where you have uh, ritual magic bound up in just how racist you are. Like it does... There's something about it that breaks the brain. And as much as we can have this materialist analysis of where it comes from, it doesn't necessarily explain they wear um, 
hoods borrowed from the Inquisition, so they're borrowing high Catholic, like, theological imagery, but it's explicitly also a Protestant group that, like, at least on paper, doesn't like Catholics either. And, like, it's this... It's it's unnerving in the same way that any occult organization would be. And it, the KKK were, importantly, literally an occult organization. Not in that yeah. they thought they were carrying out magic, but that they were a secret organization with secret codes, secret language, secret meetings, um, to the point where famously it was the Superman radio show that uh, an investigative journalist found their codes no journalist would publish it. So she brought it to the Superman radio show in the 50s. And they were like, Superman would hate the KKK. So we're going to run the actual KKK codes in this show so that people know what they are. Which mm -hmm. literally led to the, the temporary downfall of the KKK. They had another minor resurgence um, during the civil rights movement. Oh, isn't that great? I love it. What a surprise. Um, yeah. But yeah, that this... That's what makes it like... the the deeper I would dive into this stuff, the more and more satisfying um, uh, Clark's specific interpretation of the KKK as an occult Lovecraftian organization just touched a really, really strong and powerful nerve for me. Because it also, it touches on the legacy of not even just explicitly anti-racist um, work in this field, but the long narrative of occult organizations and of Lovecraftian things as being bound up specifically in institutions of power. This has been the most, I think, fruitful counter read to Lovecraft's own um, uh, re extreme racism. There we go. That's the word extreme racism, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> mind bogglingly racist thoughts and behaviors um, of instead pinning them on institutions of real systemic power and abuse. Um, as just, and we mentioned this before it, um, as a way to grapple with the way that they shatter this Hegelian sense of the dialectical relation of the world by like, how do you account for the Holocaust in a dialectical manner? How it, it, it doesn't like you or, it, or, it, or slavery, right? Exactly. Like the triangle trade. And it's, it was so brutal that the countries that enacted it distance themselves from it while still doing it like yeah it's like that's worth noting it's like it's not that europe becomes less racist because europe created this mode not the americas or africa um obviously not africa but they were so horrified by what they had created that they banned um any treatment of slaves in that manner on the continent of europe which one touches on this Lovecraftian sense of the uncanny that you can carry out a sense of wickedness that's so great that even you yourself reject it even as you continue to enact it but also really touches on how profoundly fucked all of this stuff is and so right there's also the dual use of of what ring shouts are in this novel that was both um stomach churning as a white person who unfortunately inherits the legacy of America and not unfortunately there, there aren't strong enough words for it. Um, yeah. That so I, ring ring shouts as they are outside of the context of this novel are specifically an African American reconstructive um, religious act that slaves would do. Cause obviously 
Africa's the second biggest continent in all of the world, um, has a lot of different cultures all over it. Um, and for a lot of them, the only similarity is that they happen to be black. Um, if you did an anthropological dive into Africa, you'd find more uh, sociocultural difference than in all of Europe, which makes sense because it's bigger and had more people. Like that's not, that's not like um, trying to put black people on a pedestal as some like magical mythic being. It's they had more people, more biodiversity on the continent, more space on the continent. So, but the brutal psyche and cultural like destructive engine of the triangle trade meant that it spat people out in a place where they had no access to religious or spiritual or cultural objects of importance, no access to sites of importance, often acts, no access to people who even spoke the same language as them, let alone had similar beliefs. So we had a very specific kind of African American, um, like, slave religion that would get birthed as like a literal Creole religion of syncretizing all of these beliefs as people just struggled to retain connection to, you know, the, as we mentioned earlier in the, the episode, the, the cultural elements that gave their lives a sense of meaning and allowed them to engage with the world around them. Yeah. And so the ring shout came about as this communal thing. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you used to do. It doesn't matter if you're calling to the same ancestors, spirits, gods, saints, whatever. All that matters is that we all lost something and we're all going to do a communal thing of joining in a circle, singing, dancing, chanting, and in this like slow shuffle. As anthropologists have dug into ring shouts, we are less and less certain that there was necessarily any guiding thing. And it was more, we're all going to, uh, the most primal spiritual act, the one that you see in concerts of metal bands and in uh, mosques and churches and in pagan rites, which is joining a bunch of people together in ecstasy or ecstasis, uh, like just tapping into that spiritual well and letting it out in a community. Um, this So this deeply American black spirit form then getting interposed onto the KKK's rituals of presenting those as a kind of ring shout, but like an anti-ring shout. This like subverted, profoundly evil, uh, racist, uh, colonization of this thing in order to carry out the normal occult thing that, you know, joining in a circle and chanting does to summon Lovecraftian monsters. Yeah. And so, which again, importantly, let's swing back to it. Get fucking murdered by a magic sword. Yeah. I think I really agree. I really agree with what you said. Like this, the way that Clark like puts his hands on, the duality of these things and how they interact is is really impressive, and he also does it so subtly. And now I'm gonna say spoilers. I'm gonna spoil like a very well, maybe the big plot point of the book. So like spoilers. Um, the the main character um, has something within her that prevents her from fully tapping into her power and the power of the sword. And that's a kind of doubt or fear that she has of something unspeakable 
um, and something unspeakable which attacked her and her family when she was young, when, to her memory, she was tiny and defenseless and powerless. And she kind of hangs around with this thing for the entire book. And one of the best characters in the book, um, the butcher, who just made my skin fucking royal and he was so good as, as a villain, um, keeps using that to like not only taunt her, but it also makes her supernaturally vulnerable to him because he can use that gap to enter her mind and, and fuck with it. And then in like a brilliant move, um, Clark puts the actual attackers, the, the people who assaulted her when she was young, are the same monsters she is fighting today. Because they knew that she was the sword bearer, they made sure to attack her when she was young and plant that seed of fear and doubt inside of her instead of killing her because they wanted to corrupt her. They wanted to turn herself against herself and not just kill her. So, so they, they killed her family. And most, more importantly, they put her in this really powerless position. And, and, and one of the main parts in the book, that I won't spoil exactly how it happens, uh, is like she, she gets in touch with, with the person that she was, and she suddenly sees that she wasn't that defenseless. She wasn't that small. She wasn't. that powerless like oh, you actually are small you actually are powerless but it also creates those chinks to begin with because you are born into racism because it is part of the very society that you are part of it's both the abuser but it also creates the means for which you are abused creates the insecurities inside of you now I have very different experiences of, of racism in my life, right? I'm an Ashkenazi Jew living in Israel, right? Here, I am of the powerful, not, not, not like a, a numerical majority, but a political majority, um, both within Judaism um, versus, you know, um, Mizrahi Judaism, and also, of course, with Palestinians and other um, Israeli Arabs and so on. But as a Jewish person, and it's one of the great contradictions of my life, when I go to Europe or when I go to the States um, and other places around the world, you know, I can be and have been exposed to anti-Semitism. Um, and when I moved to the UK, I moved to the UK for two years. Um, it was the first time that I felt it all around me. Right, like surrounding me, informing every interaction. Even the interactions that I thought were naive were actually channeled by this racism. I'll, I'll, I'll give just one example. Um, the first few weeks that I was there, you know, during lunch break, everybody goes to, to chapel. I mean, they're Protestants, right? So it's not church, but they go to chapel to pray. And it is obvious that we would go with them because we're 
kids, just like any other kid, right? So it's supposedly diverse. You're just like everybody else. We don't want to single you out and so on. But it meant that for an hour, we took part of a religious ceremony that had nothing to do with us, had nothing to do with our traditions. We didn't know what to do. It was very awkward. And only when they had told my mom, and my mom was horrified, were they like, well, don't make such a big deal out of it. Like, of course, we'll take them out of the service. It's not that big a deal, right? So that was the first time I was really exposed to, like, racism all around you. And as Clark describes it, like, creating these awkward situations, these chinks in your armor. If you go and ask African-American people in the States today, they'll tell you the same thing, right? From my experiences, from people that I've spoken to, this feeling of constantly you know, being on guard, constantly looking behind your shoulder, constantly thinking about um, the things that racism is, is doing to you. I think it's just like such a marvelous and powerful literary device that Clark uses in Ringshot to, to capture that. The, the, the horror that haunts you is also the primal fear inside of you, that that same horror planted inside of you from the get-go. It's a very um, neat sort of uh, loop it's also been something that's been profoundly um, necessary for for me. Um, again, not to <laughs> this is not a book about the centeredness of white people, uh, very explicitly so, and it's very very good that that's the case. But obviously, I can't I can't pretend that I read it through the lens of a black person, or that or that I can even experience it through that lens. Um, that would be ludicrous and potentially insanely uh, insensitive. Um, but seeing this work like this opens up kind of what you were describing is that as a white person in America, the notion of the, I don't know, I don't know if I want to say the duality of the world. At first it reveal the world reveals itself as a singular, a harmonious being. There is the world, there are the rules of the world, there is the relation within the world, yada, yada. And then as you, again, wake up more to the, the racist and misogynistic and queerphobic structures of the world, you wind up getting glimpses of things like, I don't know, for, for me, it was like things like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or like the sitcom Martin or certain, like, uh, I grew up in the late 80s and early 90s, so certain rap records and soul records and R&B records. You get a sight of not just different art, but it feels like it's not coming from the same world that you're in. And you look up these people and they live in Washington, D.C. They live in Atlanta. They live in New York. You know, these are all places that and you're like, but this seems so alien to me. I don't understand how. And eventually you realize that there are there is more than one world interposed within the same world. Like uh, Sheena Mieville literally does this in the city and the city for, for literally the same purpose. But yeah. it's that awakening of, and again, as, as, as I've grown older and have dug into that more and more and look, tried it, my best, at least to look at the mechanics of it, you get things like the flippant American liberal response of like, we should deep sex the deep South because everyone's racist in the deep South. And then the reality that there's the highest, um, there's the highest per capita density of people of color in the deep South that don't exist because again, there is in that mindset, one world, the white world. And because of that, 
the Deep South is the bad white world, and so it should be destroyed, without thinking about the fact that it contains these other whole world yeah. of queer culture, of black culture, of Hispanic culture, of East Asian culture, of South Asian culture, of on and on and on and on. And so this kind of... I this kind of deeply raw novel like from unapologetically from this perspective that it's there's no real explaining that goes on it's just here it is in front of you the only explaining really that happens the only mediation of attempt to bridging it to someone like me is the fact that he taps on to these very known figures like in America especially in American liberal space they love to poo poo the KKK um, as much as they don't really disagree with any of their stances, you know, obviously you can think that, you know, no, I don't think black people are dirty. I just think poor people should be pushed to get jobs. And I don't think you should use EBT on things like I saw this recently, a woman talking about, ah, I see people in the grocery store using their, uh, EBT on sheet cakes and Jesus, crab yeah. legs and right. And it's like, oh yeah, God forbid poor people have one nice fucking thing in their life. You I worked in a Walmart and I got to hear snide comments from rich white liberal women who had, you know, Obama pins on it. That's it was during basically Obama's reelection campaign. Got to hear what they really thought about, you know, uh, black and brown people in line and what they should or shouldn't be buying. And, you know, you get this. So something like this is. Obviously, I can't speak for how powerful it would be. For, for a black person, or even for someone like you who does experience that dual mode of racism in that you can be enmeshed in one culture where you become part of the oppressor class. But if you move outside of that space, you are violently ejected from it back into the, the oppressed class. I can't speak to any of that, but this still winds up being this like, it reminds me of the time, the first time that I read Beloved. Um, which is mm -hmm. a perfect book, liter literally perfect. It's literally one of the top five best things I've ever read. Like I'd put it up there with with um, like Finnegan's Wake and Gravity's Rainbow and stuff. It's like perfect book um, in terms of just being like. You know, obviously I can't ever get how profoundly pa painful the things uh, talked about in this book are, but like you get just a glimpse of it it that's one of the things that literarily i i loved about it unlike a, again a structural level because me as a reader got to experience that lovecraftian witnessing of this other world obviously not a violent and threatening world but a world that has experienced violence and threat but still one where i had i have to continuously have the veil peeled away for me because it's one I don't have direct access to. Um, and then him doing the, the big fucking solid of like, uh, all right, white boy, I know this is going to be tough for you. That lady has a magic sword and she's going to go <laughs> kill KKK members with her. Mat Cannot get over how fucking sick that was. She, she's slicing <laughs> up racists with her sword, regular racists. Like, obviously she fights monsters too, but there's, there's a point where she's just killing regular KKK members with her sword. And she's like, fuck them. They're in the KKK. Yeah. They know what they did. Fuck them. <laughs> yeah. And I think to like, maybe wrap things up. Um, 
it's also very interesting to me that these women, black women, are on the front, right? Yeah. At home, right? The front of the war against the KKK, and, and they make the sacrifices. Um, I'll stop spoiling, but like they make the ultimate sacrifices in several cases. Um, and they pay the price for the continuation of the rest of society. Right? Like, make no mistake, if the KKK win, all these like Ku Kluxes, as they're called, like the, 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 the monsters behind the KKK, everyone will die. They won't just kill the, the black people. They'll kill everyone. They'll like devour our planet. And the, the, the people protecting the planet are those that are most oppressed. And the allegory and then the metaphor here to actual black people, you know, fighting in wars for others and being oppressed while they do it is also made um, explicit in one of the characters. The name escapes me, but it's one of the trio. And she's a Harlem Hellfighter. Um, if you don't know what that is, there was an infantry regiment, um, the 369th Regiment to be exact, that fought in World War One and later in World War Two and onwards. And it was consisting it consisted mainly of African Americans, but it also had um, several Puerto Rican soldiers. And they fought in like many of the main uh, battles of World War One, specifically in the area of, of, of Champagne and, and Marne. Terrible, horrible, you know, like classic World War One battles, trench warfare and terrible artillery battles and so on. And they suffered heavy, heavy casualties. Um, they actually suffered the most losses of any American regiment. They had 1,500 casualties just inside this regiment. So they were on the, the front of this entire thing. And of course, after they came home, they faced horrible racism uh, because before they were soldiers, they were African-American, right? And, and their expectation that the army service would, you know, give them a sort of a ticket into American white society didn't really pan out. Um, and in fact, they suffered um, increasing racism between World War I and World War II, where, where racism in general dropped a bit when the war started because there was a different enemy to be fighting um, but then of course picked right back up after um, and by making one of those characters a hellfighter um, I think Clark is saying something very poignant and very powerful right? like even though you want to excise these people from your society even though you want to say that they are somehow subhuman or not worthy of the same rights they have a deep sense of not only community but also the price that needs to be paid to maintain that community, right? Um, you can say whatever you want about World War One and World War Two. It's not, I don't think it's the usual good versus bad narrative that we're fed, um, but this, they had those ideals and they were willing to sacrifice themselves for those ideals, even as the society they were a part of was, was spitting in their face, right? So it's it's another very subtle point and very interesting point that Clark is, makes in the book about, you know, and going back to your description of ring shouts as, as as a communal effort, what you give back to the group you are a part of, even if the group does not necessarily reciprocate, and even if if um, even if it hates you, like what do you owe that society, and what sort of what sort of relationship should you have with it? And I think the book leaves it open 
right? Like they end up sacrificing a lot and they win. And well, I, I don't know how much that of a spoiler. Like the good guys win, right? Like he, I think you, you saw that coming from a mile away, right? He's not going to write well. The racists, are, they win. They, we have 2020. We don't need a book for that. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but, but the deeper question is like, was it worth it? And the book kind of ends with that open question, like, was it worth that sacrifice? Was it was it worth you know the price that was paid? Um, I'd say the book says yes, but it's an ambiguous sort of yes. I that's it. That specific bit is one of the things that made me again sort of. If someone asked me whether this was a horror novel, a fantasy novel, a literary uh, novel, I and I could only pick one. Like, obviously, it's all of those things. I would lean almost more in the literary direction, despite all these other um, elements. Um, Although arguably horror is the most consistently like capital L literary of genre fiction. Um, Mm -hmm. Actually, that's a a whole dumb train of thought. Now that I think about that, almost ignore everything (laughs) I just said. But um, the point I was going to get to was precisely that um, unanswered and unanswerability that he does that that's one of the things that even on the more socially aware end of, of fantasy and science fiction, we, we've, we've come or covered some of it recently. That's one thing that kind of rankles me a little bit of making things maybe a little bit too pat sometimes and giving too clear of an answer, which I don't think is necessarily the role of literature. Um, uh, it, it, largely because authors for the most part are not, are not the the thinkers and engines of the world. There are people who can model a situation, can model an experience, and can immerse you uh, compassionately and empathetically within that experience and, and create a, a sense of uh, pathos and, and sim- sympathy where perhaps there wouldn't have been before. Um, and I, I love how measured he was with leaving a lot of those questions unanswered. It's like, he wants you to witness it. He wants you to feel it. And then, like you were saying, you get the sense that he has his own answer to these things, but he deliberately doesn't impose too much on there. He gives you just like, well, if you want my thoughts, you know, I'm going to give a little bit of like um, lensing in, in, in the wording that, that will tell you maybe where I'm landing on this. But for the most part, he just wants this pure experience to just sit inside of you. And I just, especially for something like this, I find that like profoundly moving, especially because he, he seems like someone who is uh, likely uh, very well aware of people like Audre Lorde and uh, you know, uh, Angela Davis and, and figures like that. Like he doesn't, especially with his usage of, um, of black women being the frontline figures. Like there are a couple nods where you're like, okay, I, you, you must know about these things. I'm like, I can't assume that you, they would be shocking. Um, that, yeah, it's like, it's, it's evocative power. I think just creates this richly literary thing, even outside of the like obvious, very important political, uh, messaging and thoughts. Um, contained in it. This is, I, I'm going to say it, this is similar to when I read Tokyo Ueno Station and, and made the proclamation <laughs> on the episode there. This is my favorite book of the year. 
I literally nice. can't imagine anything else topping it. There have been a lot of great books this year, like a lot. But this one just far and above. Um, yep, it's really, really super good. Um, and it's like, and I, I've been like, I've been really loving like all the stuff we've been covering. But then, uh, so this is less about the book and more about um, what what led us to it. So we're talking about, you know, what, what should we cover? All that kind of stuff. You know, what, what should we do next? And you try to have a game plan. You try to have, you know, here's our long list or short list. You want to have maneuverability. Um, Eden mentioned, so there's this book called Ring Shout that I've been looking at and I'm probably going to pick up. And, you know, I, I think that it would work really well. And my immediate response to him, if you remember, I said this a little bit earlier, was, Eden, I pre-ordered that book. That's how excited I am for it. <laughs> like, you have no idea how, like, the minute that he mentioned it, I was like, yes, that's it. That's the one. Like, let's, let's, we already have some stuff cooking. We have notes for it. So let's get through those. A absolutely. They deserve their time. But yes, then it's ring shout time. Um, yep. Guys, I'm you go on. Instant, <laughs> instant, instant match. Yeah, uh, one of those um, uh, continuing validation that uh, uh, Eden was absolutely uh, the right new co-host uh, co and also that uh, uh, this uh, book fucking rules. Like, I, I can't imagine anyone who listens to this not, like, no matter what you listen to it for. If it's for politics, this is great. If it's for uh, capital L, like, academic and literary stuff, this is great. If it's for um, like dope ass books, this is great. Like literally if it's for like emotionally rich books, this one's great. It, like literally everything. Yeah. It takes all the boxes. Although I will admit, I will admit uh, I'm forgetting its name because its name is too long. The, the elephant radiation one. Damn close. Uh, yeah. Damn. The only damn great, close. the only great Hamas thing. Yeah, that one, that one made me, that one made me ugly cry. That, that yeah, one made me ugly that's cry. a deep cut. So yeah. maybe this is a good point to do some music mm -hmm. and wrap this up. And we're going to go back to jokes and humor and not being so fucking serious about yourself. One of the best musical genres for that is grindcore. Grindcore, when done well, does not take itself seriously at all. In fact, the whole point is to have some fun. And maybe tell some fart jokes um, and just go wild, right? A lot of grind bands kind of miss that and are like, again, like cataclysmically serious about their music and mission and whatever. I, I don't really like that kind of grindcore. But then there's a wealth of bands um, who don't do that and kind of throw it out the window and just do whatever the fuck they want. But no band does that as much as beaten to death. And these guys are from. Norway, and I'm just going to read the Bandcamp biography for them to you, and that will be your introduction to the band. Beaten to Death was created in 2010 by Blah Blah Blah, released five albums and a Blah 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 great reviews that Blah 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 melodic grindcore. Huh? Blah Blah Blah. Bios are boring. Who gives a shit anyway? All you want is to hear the music. Am I right? Now, like, a lot of times when I'd see something like that, it would be like, oh, you're so edgy. What, what joy, what humor, and I'd be very skeptical. But then they actually carry that message into the actual music. And they really push the boundaries of 
what it means to make fun of yourself and your listeners. Case in point, a few months ago in September, they announced an album, a new one. The album, I will probably butcher it because it's in Norwegian. I apologize. It's called Latmar Ikverhuis Narhet Bos. And they um, initially published this as we are releasing this album on vinyl only. It will have 300 copies, and that's it. No one will be able to listen to this just if you um, listen to the vinyl. And they were very serious about it. We do this to honor music lovers that support small bands such as ourselves, whether for buying music or promoting their favorites for social media or word of mouth. Um, well, the music business has grown cold and pumps out generic tripe, people like you keep the underground going. You are the embers, and we thank you humbly. This release is for you. So it sounds very serious, right? And very melodramatic. Except <laughs> a few weeks after this announcement, they said, um, you know what? Never mind. We are going to release this album in four EPs. And it's, the vinyl is still going to be unique. It has its own artwork and its own master, its own sound, its own arrangement. And the EPs are kind of like it, but also not really kind of like it. Um, each EP takes place in a different forest, with the last one being the forest moon of Endor from Star Wars. So <laughs> you, you, you start to see like how irreverent they are. And then if you start to dig into like the lyrics, one of the lyrics uh, for the track, Corolla, engulfed by storm winds of death, has the following description in it. Obfuscated Nile-like chanting. <laughs> um, and their entire music is just littered with these jokes. For example, they released the first EP, and then the third one, and then the second one, and the fourth one is forthcoming. Why? Just because. It wasn't like an artistic vision. They literally just released it and said, by popular demand, we have decided to release part two after all. We realized that it seemed a little unprofessional to skip it. So all of this would be garbage if the music wasn't good. But the music fucking rules. That's They're the trick. Fucking great band. Yeah. Like, like a lot of people, I came on to them with Dodesfest, which um, yeah. their second record got a lot of um, a lot of positive press from a lot of places, um, went back and <laughs> it was their second record within one year, uh, as well. Um, went back and listened to X's and strokes, fucking great band went nuts. And then I, like many people got really upset. So actually, <laughs> let me set the stage. You know where I'm going with this, but yeah, 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 um, yeah. so you look at the cover of Dodes Fest and one of the big things that impressed a lot of people as like, this is going to be different is how fucking colorful it is. Like it's a, it's a, it looks like, um, it was going to be like another, like Phantomas that the calendar record they put out. I don't remember the name of the Phantomas calendar record, but yeah, like yeah. that kind of like, and we've gotten enough records in that mode of like, it's grind core, but it's like maybe bright and like bulbousy and gooey and cartoony. And, you know, those kinds of textures, um, you know, like have proggy touches and then you put it on and it's, it's not that that's wrong. It's just that it's also definitely also just grindcore, um, but like really fucking sick. And so it's like, oh, that that struck a lot of people. It's like, oh, they have this much more engaging approach to aesthetic because as as you were saying before, grindcore can be a little 
little bit up its own ass, uh, like yeah. super often. Um, and it, it'll drop sick records, but then it's like, no dog, you're not a political revolutionary. You're three guys in a basement and that's fine. That's fine. I love that. But like revolutionaries Chill. are in the road, like, you know, you calm down, like, yeah. don't take their thunder to sell your record. That's weird. Um, and beaten to death. We're like, I, oh, look at the name beaten to death. Like it's <laughs> Dode's Fest then, means literally death festival. Um, which is, and it has an exclamation mark in the title. And it's just, and then the bright, and it's like, okay, this is great. So I got hype on him. And, you know, I was, I was on that train with everyone else. And then they're like, we're going to release our follow-up record to it. And they didn't do much promo for it. They were just like, here's our new record. Uh, beaten to death, unplugged. <laughs> and I'm like an unplugged grindcore record. That's going to be like, you know, yeah, there are a number of like running jokes in the metal world, but the idea of like an all, like an acoustic folk grindcore record of like, it's acoustic folk. That's like all like, but 40 minute or 40 second long songs. And it has like a blast beat as like gentle fit. I'm like, Oh, this could be really funny. And I'm like, it's just grindcore. They, they just lie. Yeah. The title is just a lie. Like, so they just lied. And also the first track is called Papyrus containing the spell to summon the breath of life enshrined in the collected scrolls of Sheryl Crow, which like, <laughs> it's so bad and so good at the same time. It's just, incredible and then they followed that up with agronomicon which was also great yeah and now we have lat mahar in its many iterations um it fucking rules okay these yeah. guys like by not taking themselves seriously make better grindcore than most grindcore bands out there the sound yeah, is it... monstrous the riffs are brutal the blast beats just are, will melt your fucking brain the vocals are amazing it's just so good inside this irreverent humor filled um modest but also boastful package that just like takes no prisoners and you never know what these guys are going to do next um and we're going to play god there's so many tracks to choose from because it's grindcore right right um but i think we're going to do you know in in tribute to our opening discussion we're going to play the dying egg um which contains the following lyric egg the mana of the young egg the slime of the ripening egg the dust of the decomposed egg will i stand by my right to defy the streams of eggs beautiful i i'm i'm crying right now you can't see it but i'm crying from the beauty yep totally profound stuff so this is beaten to death with the dying egg <laughs> <laughs> 